Welcome to Faith and Family, a radio outreach of Family Life Center International. And now from Greenville, South Carolina, here's your host, Steve Wood. Hello, this is Steve Wood, and welcome to Faith and Family. As we cover a very important topic today, and that is discovering the holiness of God. The holiness of God is the key to an enduring faith. You know, Jesus said regarding the end times, he said, because iniquity shall abound, the love of many, many shall grow cold. And he's talking about people who previously had faith. In other words, for faith to grow cold, it at one time had to be hot. And the love of many shall grow cold, but he says, he that shall endure to the end shall be saved. So the question should be, because obviously our cultural situation is becoming post-Christian, and when that happens, the love of many will grow cold, and for young people, it's doubly influencing their whole faith life, because if you're older, you may have set a direction for your life, you're younger, what goes on in the culture so often happens in your life. So the question should be on all of our minds, well, how do we cultivate a strong faith, a strong faith both in ourselves as parents and in our children? And I suggest to you, it's just this, discovering the holiness of God, the key to a strong, enduring faith. And by discovering the holiness of God, I'm going to share really a personal testimony, because if you want to know what kind of makes me tick and a lot of what I do and how I approach things, it's because of a path of discovering the holiness of God. So let me take you back. I was standing in front of my Presbyterian Presbytery. The Presbytery is composed of the ministers and the leading elders within Presbyterian congregations within a geographic area. And I was having my minister's exam. And the portion of exam that I remember so well, it was the one on scripture. And basically, there was a person interviewing me or questioning me in front of the Presbytery. And what he would do, he would select one book out of the entire Bible, and back then as a Protestant, uh, there were 66 books, but still that's a, that's a lot of books to basically have in your mind. And he would call out the name of a book, and you were required to basically give the main purpose of the book, how the message is developed, and some of the key points. And the process can be rather nerve-wracking, even though you might have a good handle on the scriptures. Uh, you know, it's not easy to recall everything that you should know about all then 66 books of the Bible. So I was asked to summarize the message of Isaiah. Now, Isaiah has 66 chapters, and that's over 25,000 words. And you might think, oh boy, I bet Steve was panicking at that point, and actually, I breathed a great sigh of relief because I had discovered what made Isaiah tick and kind of the fundamental reason that 
engaged and energized his entire prophetic message. And I immediately, in, when I was asked to basically give the gist of Isaiah, and Isaiah is a major influence on both the Jews and Christians. It's such an important book of the Bible. And I went immediately to Isaiah chapter 6. In my answer, I said, Isaiah chapter 6 is the key to the whole book of Isaiah. And the key to the Christian life, and surprisingly, this is ignored in our day. And you have to be very careful because publishers always want to have something new and different and trendy and this and that. But the key to Christianity is God, <laughs> not, not us, okay? And it, it's kind of, there, there's a, a book title that says, you know, when God is small, people are big. When God is big, people are small. By small, I mean humble. And if you're humble, you have the key to connect with the great God. But in any case, here's what goes on in chapter 6 of Isaiah. In Isaiah, there's there's something that happens only once in the entire Bible. And there's the three times repeated description of God as holy, holy, holy. And Old Testament Hebrew is a very limited language. So if you wanted to emphasize something, particularly an attribute of God. Remember, God is the key to our faith. It's not us, okay? And not just what he does for us. It starts with who he is. If we grasp that, then we have an enduring faith, particularly an enduring faith which we need in a day when love grows cold. And so here's, I'm going to read for you these verses from Isaiah. This is the key to the book of Isaiah. This is a key to an enduring faith. And this is also, in a certain sense, Isaiah's, you might call it conversion experience or renewal experience, and it gave him the power. It colored everything that came out of his life. Here's how it goes. Isaiah 6. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up. And above him stood the seraphim, and one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is filled with his glory. And the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. What's Isaiah's reaction? Verse 5, and I said, Woe is me, for I am lost. I am a man of unclean lips and dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim, having in his hand a burning coal, which he had taken with the tongs from the altar, and he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips, and your guilt is taken away, your sin forgiven. So in Isaiah 6, what Isaiah saw, this vision of God 
in his holy temple, and when the seraphim were declaring him to be holy, 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 nowhere else in the Bible do you find this triple description of any attribute of God himself. This is the top of the food chain, you might say, regarding the attributes of God. Now, just a little P.S., if your children in a catechetical program or if you're teaching your kids religion and homeschool or if they're in a youth group, are they taught the holiness of God as the, uh, the most critical and important revelation of God himself? Or are we just on to things and actions and feelings and experiences and forgetting the essence of God, that he's holy, holy, holy. And what does holy mean? It's very hard to actually put your fingers on it, but it's kind of like he is one of a kind. He is entirely unique. He is categorically different and distinct from everything and everyone that exists in the entire universe. And what happens? What happens when Isaiah sees the holy God? You have something that is absolutely necessary for an enduring faith in the 21st century. And this is what happened. As a result of seeing the ultimate holy, holy, holy God, Isaiah was stricken with his own sinfulness. And this is a key. I'm going to give you a sentence, and I'm going to repeat it at least twice because so many parents get heartbroken when they see their late teen, young adult children just walk away from their faith, and the culture wins. And it's happening with the majority of our young people. So how do we get a strong faith? Here it is. The distance between our vision of the holy God and our sinfulness is the exact measure of the enduring love of God in our lives. I'm going to repeat that. The distance between the vision of the holy God and our sinfulness is the exact measure of the enduring love of God in our lives. Now, you can tell a young person, God loves you, and and very often they're catechized that way. And there's nothing wrong because God is love, but it doesn't say God is love, love, love. God is holy, holy, holy. And when we see that, the immediate effect is seeing the depth of our sinfulness. And that distance, of course, is bridge. You can put like the cross in the middle of that. That's the importance of what Christ did for us is that distance between the holy God and our sinfulness. And this is so critically important, and it's eclipsed in our day. And if you happen to be a Protestant listening, yes, it's eclipsed in Protestant circles. And if you're a Catholic listening, it's eclipsed in too many Catholic circles. Now, there's one of two big reasons why I was prepared for the Isaiah question in my minister's scripture exam. And it's, I experienced in a very mini, mini version, and I, Isaiah experience in a sense that 
uh, I was on my own uh, on a spiritual pilgrimage in the Navy. I just just didn't know what was up. I didn't really realize that I was seeking the God of the Bible. I was into the New Age stuff and all that. But I started reading the Bible to free my karma, and then I found myself uh, in big trouble. I really sensed that given what the Bible said about the seriousness of God, the seriousness of sin, I came to the realization, I confessed every sin I could think of in my mind, every sin that I had done, and when I got done, I came to the very distinct conclusion that I was unforgivable, I was unsavable, I was unredeemable, and I went to bed in my bunk because it's a very early wake-up call. The next morning, it was a CN anchor detail, which means we're going out to sea, and we generally do that very, very early in the morning before the sun comes up and all that. And I woke up, and my whole life changed ever since then. It just dramatically changed. And that distance... Um, just an honest reading of the Bible, I came to the honest conclusion that there's no reason in the world why God should love me or forgive me for what I have done. And little did I know that was a good position to be in. Here's this great man, Isaiah. Now, here's the temptation. You say, well, I'm I wasn't a wild, crazy teenager like Steve was, so you know this doesn't apply to me. Yes, it does. And here's why Isaiah was so critical in his day. There's an extreme danger when your culture goes into apostasy, and the nation Israel had done so at that time. But let's just say uh, you're a Jew back then, you continued worshiping in the temple and going about some of your religious activities, but you're really, you're just sliding downward as far as the practice of your faith. Or let's take it into today. You're a Christian and like, hey, you know, I'm not nearly as bad as the people I hear about on the news or see on TV. I'm doing okay as a Christian. And you're measuring yourself by other people who are living a degenerate lifestyle thinking, well, I must be okay because I'm better than that. And that's not how you measure yourself. And that's why if you lose sight of the holiness of God, you've got the wrong measurement and you could be in big trouble for all eternity because God sends people to hell that ignore him and go their own sinful ways, thinking that God's some kind of warm, fuzzy pushover. And he's so happy just to have me going to church every now and then. No, it doesn't work like that. So I came to see that I was accepted by God and there was nowhere else to go <laughs> in life. He got me. And I wish that experience for every person listening to this broadcast, for every one of your children, for every young person and older person listening to my voice right now, uh, discover the holiness of God and you will have an enduring faith because just let that separation between the holiness of God and your sinfulness grow and Jesus's love will fill that in between, and that love will not grow cold. It will endure. Now, there's a second reason why I was prepared for that Isaiah question, because uh, of my experience in basically having this conversion experience and then 
going home to my mainline denominational congregation, uh, minister and such was very kind to me and everything, but the spiritual life was just very weak. You might even almost spiritually dead. Uh, during hymn singing and such, you could see mouths moving, but it's just like hardly anything was happening. And so uh, I flipped, really, and attended a uh, very lively, enthusiastic, uh, charismatic church that just uh, about the time Karen and I were married and before I went off to seminary had an extremely nasty split. It was one of the worst experiences of my whole life, even some worse than some negative experiences before I accepted Christ. So I went off to seminary with a passion. I wanted to discover how a church community could have a vibrant spiritual life, but also have a strong structural foundation so that renewal isn't a very exciting flash in the pan, but could have a a genuine and lasting and solid renewal effect. And I am forever grateful for encountering one of my professors at Gordon-Conwell Theological Seminary, Dr. Richard Loveless, and his key book is entitled The Dynamics of Spiritual Life. And I'm holding the book here. Let's see. It's 450 pages. It's a big book. But the center of the book, the main theme of the book, is Isaiah 6. And Dr. Loveless taught us that there are two necessary preconditions for a deep, lasting spiritual renewal, either individual or corporate as a believing community. And the first as you can guess, is a vivid awareness of the holiness of God. That's Isaiah 6. This is, that's the key section of Scripture in the entire Bible which focuses on that holiness of God. And then B, a corresponding vivid awareness of the depth of sin in our life. And then he told us, this is the spiritual dynamic, these two poles— God's holiness, our sinfulness, and into this dynamic comes the good news of the gospel. And when it comes in this framework, it makes one's entire life change permanently. It doesn't fizzle out when it runs into difficult situations. And again, today's youth, many have heard the good news of the gospel, okay, but it's apart from the supreme holiness of God. In other words, uh, you're, you're, you're taking away this dynamic, and the result is a weak, shallow faith that's easily abandoned as you get into some cultural opposition and opposition from your friends as you grow a little bit older. So I took actually multiple courses from Dr. Loveless because as I figured this out, this is why this is what I was looking for. This was kind of, it was actually more of an answer than I uh, could hope for. And the, the type of spiritual awakenings that go through this too, it's not just large numbers of people becoming Christians while your whole culture goes to hell. 
But having these genuine renewal experiences, again, the dynamic between the holiness of God, our sinfulness, and the dynamic of the gospel coming in and filling that whole separated dimension is the love of God, which conforms us to the image of Christ, and as we're conformed, transformed, so is our culture, and that's how it's supposed to work. Let me give you a couple of, um, oh, just a couple of sentences from Dr. Lovelace's book. And again, this is written from an evangelical point of view, but certain evangelicals get a lot of stuff right. He says, acceptance of Christ and appropriation of every element in redemption is conditional on an awareness of God's holiness and a conviction of the depth of our sin. These two factors are essential that the degree of self-knowledge which drives a man to inquire after Christ, and they are deeply intertwined. Men and women cannot know themselves until they know the reality of God who made them, and once they know the holy God, their own sin appears so grievous that they cannot rest until they have fully appropriated Christ. And it talks about coming to know God in that way. Now, what should we do? Well, you know, in order to reach uh, a generation or a culture that's obviously um, walking away from all kinds of truths of the Christian faith, the last thing we should be doing is start watering things down, especially God's holiness. Let's, let's just kind of like skip some things where God's pretty stern at times, and rather than emphasize his holiness, let's make him more appealing. Let's have user-friendly uh, presentations of God, and let's portray him as primarily characterized by a warm, fuzzy love. And instead, God presents himself like he did to Moses in the book of Exodus, chapter 3. It says, the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush, and he looked, and the bush was burning, yet it was not consumed. And we are told in the Gospel of Matthew by John the Baptist that he, Jesus, the Messiah, will baptize you with fire. This isn't something you just read about in history and back in the book of Exodus, God is the holy God of consuming fire. And that's why we uh, don't go to mass in our tennis shorts. <laughs> now, hey, if a guy comes to mass covered in grease from head to toe because he has no option other than to work on a time where mass is and he comes in filthy, I have absolutely no problem with that. But if we casually and just say, well, I need to check that off to get on with my weekend, the book of Hebrews in chapter 12 says that, let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. And if we as parents and priests and all those participating in a liturgy treat God the way he should be treated, then young people begin to grasp that before they even learn the words that describe what's going on. Now, I have to share with you a problem that I had at Gordon-Conwell Theological Seminary, and it was an Isaiah 6 problem. 
And it was a pretty significant problem. And I don't know if I even mentioned my problem to anybody else, but it really bothered me. I came while in seminary to fully accept the Isaiah 6 model of church and personal renewal. And yet I had a disturbing problem every time I went to chapel services. You see, my campus, Gordon-Conwell, was owned by a Catholic Carmelite order. It was a Carmelite boys' school, and they were hoping to get some vocations to the priesthood out of that, and it didn't work, and they sold it to Billy Graham and company to start an evangelical seminary. Well, when the Catholics left, they left only three words— there's no catechism, Catholic Church, there's no Council of Trent, you know, no uh, papal decrees. They only left three words. And high in our chapel, there is a special kind of uh, little area for really big letters on just underneath the ceiling. It said Sanctus, 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 which is the Sanctus in the Mass. Holy, holy, holy. Now, at that point in my life, I accepted the rather common Protestant position that Catholics weren't real Christians. And yet, they left behind three words in very large letters that were the core of what it means to have a vibrant, enduring, true Christian faith. And I thought, if Catholics weren't Christians— how in the world did they figure that out? How in the world did they get that? Because I was leaving seminary with Isaiah 6, holy, 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 and the Catholics left behind three words. It just really kind of messed me up. Little did I know, I'm a slow learner, it took me a full decade after that to realize that the Catholics actually were real Christians, and that uh, perhaps I should become one. And in the Mass, the real presence, this is the real holy presence of God that Isaiah encountered. That's what we're talking about in the real presence of Christ in the Eucharist. And we have our confession, Lord, I'm not worthy for you to come under my roof, but only say the word and my soul will be healed. And here we have discovering the holiness of God at the heart of the Mass and should be a renewal of a vibrant, enduring faith every time we worship God. And being conscious of this, discovering this, will transform pew warmers into on-fire Christian disciples. I'm Steve Wood, your host, and you've been listening to Faith and Family. Faith and Family is a radio outreach of Family Life Center International. Visit us online at dads.org.